Well, I'm glad you've chosen to join us. Uh, we're continuing a series that we started. Uh, the series that we began a little while ago is called Colossians. We've been looking at through this book, and it's uh, avoiding some colossal mistakes, which um, if you've been reading along the reading plan and you've joined us when we started, uh, we started with this concept that Paul, who is writing this book to this church, is saying there's a lot of different mistakes that he's concerned about. His, he- his heart is heavy, it's weighted, and he's concerned that there's certain things the church could go through. Now, Paul didn't plant this church, he didn't start this church, which is interesting. Someone who was his disciple started it, so he's never actually visited there, but yet he's burdened for this church, and he wants to see this church be very successful. We're not exactly sure what the heresy was, where they were deviating from, you know, known stuff that they should be doing, but a lot of people believe it was connected to something we talked about last week, which is called Gnosticism. You can look that up in last week's message. But in avoiding the mistake this week and looking at the text, which will still be in chapter 2, this is the title of the message that we hope will help you and I to avoid a similar mistake, which is avoid being a shallow, easily manipulated brat. So when I say that word, not brought, that's a different issue, a brat, okay, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? The first thing that came to my mind and my wife's mind was being at the grocery store. How many of you have experienced that moment, whether it's your own kid or somebody else's kid, where they just have this moment where they've got to have something and they know that they're supposed to have some? Usually happens right around the aisle. Do you notice they put stuff at the checkout aisle that's meant to mess up men, women, and children? And they're like, I want that. And there's a temper tantrum. How many of you have seen this, witnessed this? Yeah, they're like, oh, yeah. And when it's your kid, what do you want to do? Just leave without even paying for the groceries, right? Because everybody's going, do something to that kid, you know? And so I remember this happens often in our life, but it also happens spiritually in the church. And so we're going to talk about that. But to kind of give it context, help us think about it, think about maybe some things that you've gone through with your own kids or you went through as a child being raised and how you had to go through discipline as a matter of actually not becoming a spoiled little brat, right? So I remember with our kids, there were two different things that worked pretty effectively. With Brittany, it was timeouts. So there's just something about if you're an active kid, if you're a hyper kid, I was one of those kids, putting us in a timeout is like hell. I mean, that just like really gets to us, right? And so, so I remember one time when she was going through one of those spells, I sat her down and I said, you're a strong-willed child, which is a good thing, right? Being a strong-willed child is a good thing. Dad's a strong-willed child, but where do you think you got the will from? Okay, And the rule was, here's the, the deal, until you actually correct what happened, neither one of us are going to get up and we're going to see who has the stronger will between the two of us. Now, I don't know if that's good parenting or not, but I know it worked in our case. And I remember with Seth, it didn't work. So Seth, Seth's like getting him in a timeout. It's like, cool, thanks for the vacation, dad. Right? <laughs> He's chilled, easygoing, different kind of kid. And so I remember my wife and I talked about different things we could do, taking away things, you know. And if you're a parent, you're getting what I'm saying. You feel this, Right? But with Seth, there were two things. I remember we, we decided, you know, because we, we read Dr. Dobson, which is a, some great resources with the focus on the family. And he had said, listen, when it comes to spanking, there's only a few things you should do that for. And you decide as a family what you'll do that for and what you won't do that for. Because you don't need to spank your kid for every little thing. And so that gets crazy. That gets into anger, okay? And so we talked about what we would do with that. And I remember we decided, uh, based on our readings, we would never spank our kids with our hands. This is a personal decision for us that our hands should be for love and affection and that's it but also that there would be one object in the house that would be considered the rod of discipline, man. It was going to be the instrument. And so we looked for it. And if, if you're in the kitchen, you probably recognize there's this one spoon. I don't know what its official use is, but it's got a hole right in the middle of it, right? And so we said, 
that looks like a good instrument to discipline with, okay? Because it's aerodynamic, and I think we can control this one, right? So I remember that's what we would do. And there were only two things. If he bad-mouthed his mom or he was disrespectful, that was an immediate disciplinary action that was spanking. Or if they were going to do something that could cause them physical harm permanently, like they didn't listen to you when he said, don't run out in the street, that's stupid, right? And so we just felt like these were the two things. There weren't a lot of those that happened, but of course, if you're like me and you're a parent, you're at other people's house and these things happen, right? And we didn't withhold it. I know probably today we'd be locked up, but we didn't withhold this punishment from our kids. And I remember we were at a friend's house one day and they had defective equipment. And so um, this was their spoon. Now, before you think I was wailing on Seth, I wasn't, okay? We only gave one whack and it was a little whack, but their spoon was defective. It had a knot right in the middle of it. And so as soon as I gave him his little spanking, it broke. My friend thought that was so funny. He put this for a Christmas present for me, and then now it sits in our garage. And I just thought, was, But this is a picture of what we're going to talk about today in the church, okay? That Paul wished to actually give some discipline to the church, because sometimes a church could be a spiritual brat. Now, I think this should come up at the deacons meeting, John. Do you think it would be appropriate to, with adults in the church that aren't being good to... Uh, That's on me, okay. I was curious. I just thought it would be kind of fun. But, but here's the reality. Imagine all those pieces, and then imagine the church. What kind of things would people in the church do that would require discipline? That would make them a brat. There's a church here on Delmarville. I'll never forget, I was talking to one of the pastors, and he was pastoring there. He was doing a pretty good job. You know, he's his first pastorate. And um, he got fired one day, and I was talking to him. I said, what happened? What happened? He said, well, the list went like this. I didn't visit enough. I didn't cut the parsonage grass enough. And he started going down all of these personal lists that were at the church that he didn't do enough of. But not anywhere on the list was something like didn't teach the word, you know, didn't shepherd the flock, you know, didn't actually help people in their spiritual journey. So there was nothing there. And I thought, sounds like your church is full of a bunch of brats, if I'm going to be honest for a second. People that somehow in the checkout line of what they thought they would get in church thought that that pastor was supposed to fulfill every single need they had, which was an inappropriate thing. And so when I look at that, what Paul's going to talk about, you're going to see, is not new. We have this still as a problem in the church today in different, well, in different ways, in different realm. And so I think this will be helpful for us. It definitely is beneficial to me. It makes me want to find the appropriate spoon for the church. But we'll talk about that later with the deacons, and they'll hold me accountable, right? And make sure I don't do anything dumb, just like my wife said, don't put that in your message. All right. Let's look at this passage together in Colossians. And we're going to start in chapter 2, starting with verse 6. I'm reading out of the NIV. Here's what Paul said to the church. He says, so then... Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith and the power of God who raised him from the dead. 
It's a powerful piece of scripture. And so Paul, again, as he's directing this to the church, he's concerned about this church. His heart is heavy for this church. And I think one of the things he wanted us to understand is that there's this dynamic of shallowness inside of the church. And so when he saw people that were shallower in their faith, when he's talking about this in the passage, he's saying surrender to Christ is the key to joy and thankfulness. Surrender to Christ is the key to joy and thankfulness, especially for those who are struggling with being just shallow in their faith. There's not a lot of depth. This is why he says, so then just as you received Christ, if you've got a Bible, you should underline that, as you received Christ, just as the Lord continued to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened the faith as you were taught. That's something else you should underline. Were taught. At some point in time, each one of us should have someone who's coaching us, mentoring us, investing in us, and are teaching us what it means to live in the faith. And it's got to be connected to just as we receive Christ. There's a connection there. So let me ask you a question. Do you have the humility to receive? That's the first component of this. Do you have the humility to receive instruction? Are you a place that you'll receive the godly wisdom that God wants to give to you through godly people who he surrounded you with? Now, let me give you some responses that I've seen as just as you receive Christ. Because I think some of us, when we read that, we're going to put ourselves into that passage and we're going to say, well, this is how I receive Jesus. But there's a component of this that's supposed to be common. Some of us receive Christ this way. He was a get out of hell free card. And that's all he was for us, right? Do not pass go. Do not collect 200. Just get out, right? I'm going to pray a prayer to make sure I'm not going to that place. And that's a very religious response to something that's actually much more deeper. Some of us received Christ because we just wanted a place of belonging. We just wanted a place where we could hang out and develop friendships and build friendships with people. It was almost a little bit of a social club kind of reception. This is the reason by which that we accepted Christ. That's a social gospel or a social belonging. And some of us received him because we just had a difficult time dealing with life and he was an emotional crutch that we could lean on. Now, in all three of these, it's the inappropriate response that we should have is just as we've received Christ. The way we should have received him is because of what he did on the cross, how he died for our sins, and the depth of understanding how much our sin separates us from one another and from God. I was hanging out with a friend, uh, you know, Pastor Peter and I, a lot of times we'll plan messages together. He had his mentor down this weekend, his Episcopal priest named Father Sam. Some of you have met Father Sam. He's a trip. And he had a quote when we were just talking through this that I thought was so good. He said, you know, when you look at a body of water, the more shallow the water, the more easily it is to disturb the water. You ever thought about that? And so when you look at Christians and we look at our faith just as we've received Christ, the more shallow our spiritual depth, the more easy it is to disturb us in certain ways. And I was pondering this when I thought about how different people receive Christ and how sometimes it's not the depth that really God wants us to receive him. And I, re- I recalled back when I was a student pastor, and if you've ever been through a tragedy with students, it's, it's deep. I mean, it's a deep cut, you know. When a youth dies, you know, in a tragic accident of some kind, it really goes through the student body as well as the families that are connected to those. And I remember we had had this young girl who died in a car accident, and it was a, it was a bad situation. And we were trying to work with the students, and we were gathering with them to try to help them navigate their grief. And there was one girl, and I remember watching her, who was always on the fringe. Do you know what I mean when I say that? She was never really all in when it came to the relationship with Christ. You could kind of see it. She was always on the fringe, checking things out. And definitely, it was more of a social interaction for her to be a part of youth group. And I remember when this came, 
and it hit. It rocked her world so bad she lost her faith entirely. And I watched it happen, and I realized in that moment, I wondered, was there really ever a concrete faith by which to build upon? I still pray for her often. I think of her, and I'm thinking, I hope, and I pray that somehow that's come full circle. And she's begun to build her faith on something more substantial because her faith was definitely built more on the social interaction she was having with the people in the student ministry, not based on what Christ had done for her. And when these moments come to you and I, they're going to rock us. And how much will our waters be shifted because of the depth of our spiritual nature? This is why it's important that just as you receive, you understand receiving Christ is all about what he's done and not about what we do. The other question is, how have you been taught? Each one of us have been taught in some way. In some way, you've been taught, you've received, you've had a mentor, you've had a Sunday school teacher, you've had a small group leader, you've been to Bible study. There's different ways by which that you've been taught. And based on how you've been taught, it affects how you understand how you continue to grow just as you receive Christ. So let me ask you, when you were taught about salvation, when someone began to present this to you, did they talk to you about the depth of your own sin first? Did they present to you that each one of us are so separated from God because of who we are and the depth of our sin nature. That's why whenever we begin that conversation here, we talk about admitting our sin. Some people say, doesn't it kind of trivialize it, just make it as simple as ABC? No, it helps us to contextualize something that's really important. You should always begin with admission of your sin before God. It's, it's a critical place. And whether it's a Sunday school teacher small group te- or small group leader or someone who's mentoring you, they should always begin with, what's the area that's hindering you from God? Where it's the first time you begin this relationship or how you're going to continue this relationship. So when people come to you and they say, my marriage is a wreck, it's usually not about the marriage, is it? In general, from a spiritual Christian standpoint, it's going to be about how are you as believers? Have you admitted your wrong based on the marital relationship? As the man, have you admitted that you haven't led the way God designed you to lead, loving your wife the way Christ loved the church, willing to give up everything that you want to present her as holy and blameless? Let's start there. That's a nasty place to start. As a wife, if you come to a place that you want to elevate your husband to be able to lead in such a way that he becomes more like God, more godly in his character, have you done that for him? Have you helped him to understand that? I guarantee that's at the core almost of every marital problem I've ever sat down with. Now, I'm not a counselor, and you don't want me to counsel you because I don't have the gift of mercy. But here's the reality. I've seen this over and over and over again. There's good counselors that can help with this, but I guarantee this is at the heart of it. The other piece is to believe only in what Christ has said is true, not what the world shows us is true. And so when I begin to dig into this, and I begin to understand that Christ paid for my sin, my sin personally, It changes my perspective, and that's how you receive him, and that's how you grow in him. And then there's always a commitment. The old biblical word for this is the idea of repentance, but it's commitment in our day-to-day, which means this. I'm going this direction. I think this is the right way to go. This is how I think this is designed to work in life, and now I've seen what God has said, so therefore, I'm going to turn a complete 180, and I'm going to move in the direction that God's going. That's a commitment. So not only is my faith, I believe what God said, but now I'm going to move in the direction that God's going. That's how we receive Christ, and that's how we continue for the rest of our life to grow in him. So let me ask you this question. What's your faith based on? I hope it's not a get-out-of-hell-free card. I hope it's not a social gospel. I hope he's not a crutch to lean on when you're having an issue. 
I hope you understand the depth of your sin, the amazing thing he accomplished for you, and how you and I every day commit ourselves to him in the direction he's going. The second thing I think the apostle wanted to say in this passage was avoid being influenced and manipulated and uh, being influenced and manipulated to be filled with anything except Christ. Anything except Christ. And so he says in verses 8 and 10, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive. Wow, that's violent, isn't it? They take you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. The Christian experience is very diverse. We were talking about this in our, our, um, our devotion with the band. It's a very diverse experience. And at different times, people can abuse your desire to grow in your faith. So you've received Christ, now you want to grow in your faith, and they can take that moment and they can manipulate and abuse it if you're not careful. So let me give you the spectrum of things that I've seen on the Christian faith. They can be broken down into three realities, experiential realities, knowledge, and holiness. And you see this as a continuum in the church at different times, all right? So some people will say, you need this experience to grow in your faith, and they'll point to a specific experience. Other people will point to a specific knowledge that you need. If you don't have this knowledge, then you're missing something. And other people will say, until you start acting like this, which is holiness, then you're not all the way in. And this happens all the time within the church. Let me give you a couple examples. One we know is what's called the prosperity doctrine. Prosperity doctrine is when a pastor says to you, if you'll do this, especially if you pay for this and I'll send you this hanky, you know, on TV, okay? If you'll do this and that, then God will do this in your life and it'll prosper you and take you to a new place. He'll give you this much. He'll give you this car. He'll do That's called a prosperity doctrine. And what it's doing is it's leveraging, I think, many times a noble thing that's happening in the life of the believer, which is they want to go further. And what the pastor, the preacher, or the person who's inappropriate is saying is, is, you need to do this to get God to do this. And that's experiential. Another place you'll see that is this one. You'll have this one. Until you've spoken with this specific gift in tongues, you've not received the fullness of the Spirit. You ever heard that one? That in some way, one gift could be narrowed to represent the wholeness of God's presence and Spirit. Experiential. I'm telling you, and it's, 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 these are the things I guarantee that the apostle was talking about. Another one is knowing certain things. We were talking about certain theologies until there's one that is built on an acrostic called tulips. If you know what I'm talking about, that's one. There's many different ones. But they say, until you ascribe to all of these different doctrines and teachings, you've not come to the fullness of your faith, and that person will beat you up with knowledge that you don't have and make you feel like an infantile Christian. That is not appropriate. There's another one that says until you act a certain way, you're holy enough that you, you, know, you dress a certain way. You know, I'm talking about the skirt-wearing, only non-makeup, King James-only-carrying people who say that you have to do this to have the holiness of God. I had one of those one day. I was cutting grass. I'm cutting grass. My wife's inside doing all the cool stuff that she does. I remember I'm cutting grass, and this guy's going door to door. And the first thing I'm thinking is he's... Yeah, you got it. So that's what I was saying. But he wasn't. He was actually from a church down the street. Which So then when I had a conversation, I was excited. I'm like, oh, cool, Christian, walking through our neighborhood, just getting to meet people, knocking on doors. I'm excited. We get to talk. And I'm thinking we're going to have a mutually encouraging conversation about our faith. And not, not, not far into the conversation, he says, so have you been filled to a point that you never sin anymore? And he begins to talk about the concept of holiness. And at the moment of salvation, real salvation changes people to the point they don't even think about sin anymore. I'm like, I don't know what church you go to, but that is not the way it worked in my Christian faith. I believe Jesus has done it all, and it's not based on anything that I've done. And I'm like, but I'm not here to have an argument with me. I'd rather cut the grass, okay? (laughs) Because I think that's more fruitful than a conversation with this person. Because all they wanted to do was try to whip me in a debate about something that really wasn't worth talking about to begin with. 
And this happens all the time. I'll never forget when I finally began to understand the fullness of this passion to not be held captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition instead of God's faithfulness. And I was sitting in a Bible teaching one day, and a friend of ours was preaching on this. He, he had three words he called it. He called it hedinosis, dewy right, and one was experiential. And they were talking about this very same principle, and they made this statement, I was so set free, and I, if it sets you free, I'm so thankful. They said, any time you add to the finished work of Christ, or you take away, you said that Christ is not enough. And it set me free. I began to appreciate the diversity of the Christian faith, that some people had really good head knowledge that was God had given them, that some people had had unique experiences that were real experiences. I couldn't discount how the gifting of the Holy Spirit worked in their life. I was actually appreciative of the fact that God gave them that gift, and he gave me this gift. And I began to not envy the gift in one another, but I began to see Christ as fully sufficient in every place in my life, and I was given peace to not have to worry about competing with other Christians anymore. And that's one of the things that Paul was concerned about. And those are some bratty Christians. Have you met them? I mean, they think they know more than you do. They think they've had an experience that's better than what you've had. Or they're just holier than thou. You've met them, right? I remember wanting to throw a pallet at one one time working at Pepsi. I mean, that's how crazy this stuff can drive you. But God is saying in Christ, he's fully sufficient. For in him, here's the reason why. All the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Wow, that is one of the coolest passages in all scripture. In Christ, the fullness of deity, the fullness of what it means to be God, lives in human form. And check this out. If you're a Christian, if you've received this kind of salvation, and you have been given fullness in Christ, you can't add anything, you can't take it away. You've been given the fullness of what you need for your Christian life in him who's the head of every power and authority, every power, every power and authority. When you become a Christian, you get all you need for what you need to be saved, but you also get all you need and what you need to grow as a believer, and you just need to find someone who understands this. And if you don't, people will nick away at this truth, and they'll try to take it away from you. Every cult and every church that's gone wayward this is the core problem, and this was what was concerning the Apostle Paul. Church of Scientology, you know, you read about that one, all started with something called Dianetics. Some of you remember those commercials, right? Dianetics, the whole thing of interrogating people to find out what's wrong spiritually inside of them, all was based on the fact of the science of the mind and moving away from the sufficiency of Christ. Another group that came out of that same movement was Christian Science, started by a lady named Mary Eddie Baker. And here's what she did. She tickled in the heart of people that wanted healing so bad that she said the problem is not a healing problem. The part is a spiritual problem. And that you don't need a doctor. You don't need a medical procedure. You just need to pray better and pray the way we tell you to pray and join this specific church. And they started reading rooms all over the world and all over the country based on this idea Here's the litmus test. I'll give it to you, and you can write it down. It's so good. It's 1 John 4, 2 through 3. You can write that down. 1 John 2, or 4, 2 through 3. John, dealing with the same problem in their day, talking about this, said, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you've heard is coming and even now is already in the world. 
Um, a famous commentator talking about John said he was so passionate about this issue. He was hanging out in a bathhouse. That's like before, you know, people had like indoor plumbing. They'd have these places called bathhouses. They would kind of refresh there when they were on a trip. And so John's hanging out in a ba- in this, this house. And this other guy from a different philosophy comes along. He was a guy that was a big leader in Gnosticism. And the fact that he was in the same house drove John so nuts he didn't want to be on the same roof. He ran out of the house naked. I mean, that's pretty wild, okay? He was pretty passionate about this. And I think we need to get back to not running around naked, but we need to get back to a passion that drives us to know Jesus, not have a specific experience, not have a certain knowledge, and not be holier than thou, that our pursuit has to be him and him alone. Third thing is true surrender is lived out in obedience. True surrender is lived out in obedience. He said, in him you were also circumcised in the putting off of sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. He calls us by the heart, another place in Scripture. Having been buried with him with a baptism, uh, buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant with Abraham. Okay, that was what that was. And what's happening here is the apostles saying, I'm connecting two things together. They circumcised their kids on the eighth day. Why? Because God had made a covenant. He said, this is how I work, and this is how I'm working with this group of people. And when you're obedient, it unleashes not a greater revelation of who he is, but a greater connection to his heart. So here's the thing. You can't do anything more to get God. It's true. But you can surrender more of who you are to God. And that's what sanctification is. That's what this growing relationship is all about. So for them, it was, here's this covenant of circumcision. Will you follow? In fact, they were so serious about it, they would even violate the Sabbath to do circumcision. That's how important it was. And when you look at this, this is talking about a new sign with us, which is baptism. Again, these are signs, they're truths about something deeper. And so for someone who first comes to Christ, they're supposed to say, I want to show that to people. I want to take a step of obedience, and they step into baptism. That's why baptism is so important. Because what it says is, there's been a real transformation, and now I want to follow. I want to be obedient. And this happens over and over and over again in the life of people who want to really follow after the depth of Jesus. So let me just ask again, because I don't know about you, but I'm not, I'm not quite there in my work, okay? I'm still working out my salvation. I'm still working out my faith. And there's areas that I'm still working to understand how to give greater surrender to Christ. And if I'm there, I'm just curious if you're there too. And here's a reality I want you to, to think about. Delayed obedience <coughs> is disobedience. <coughs> Sorry. Delayed obedience is disobedience. So if you've known for some time that you're supposed to do something and you don't do it, it's disobedience. And if you're being disobedient to God, why would you expect your spiritual walk to move farther forward? Because he's already designed and said, if you'll do this, you'll experience a greater fullness of who I am. It's not going to change the fact that you know him, that you have a relationship with him, but it will impact your life. And so I just want to give you a chance to meditate, to think on, and to pray about. What's the area for you? I mean, immediately when I was writing this message, I thought about an area for myself, an area that I still sometimes wrestle with and struggle with and get so frustrated with myself about. 
And what that comes down to is an area of obedience. In what way am I not trusting God in that area of my life? In what way am I believing something of my own thinking versus God's thinking? So for you, maybe you haven't researched it. It's not become aware to you. It's not known. But all of us have an area that's the next step. And so I just want to give you a chance to meditate, to pray, to consider, to let God's spirit sift you, search you, and to make known to you what's the area where you need to surrender today? What's the area where you need to just say, I need to admit this is an issue before God. I need to believe that Christ is the solution. And I need to make a moment of commitment to him. So let's give you that moment. And just think and pray and ask God to reveal to you what's going on. this morning but also as individuals realizing that you love us so much that your heart aches for a relationship with us and not just to begin a relationship for some they need to begin the relationship but there's others in this room that just want to go deeper with you and you want to go deeper in your relationship with them. Lord, we've given you a moment to show us through your Holy Spirit what we need to surrender to, what area of our life is suffering the most or is on our mind that we need you involved in. And so we take this moment, God, to admit before you our sin in that situation. So would you do that? Would you admit to God how you've wronged him or wronged someone else that you admit your sin and your part in it? Would you do that right now? Father, we recognize that our sin separates from us from you. You say that sin's missing the mark. Missing the mark for how you want our lives to go. You said that our lives should have fullness 
and beauty. That they would work the way you designed them to work, but God, sin has wrecked that. Both for those that haven't come to know you yet, but also for those that are continuing to try to walk in this relationship. We allow sin to creep in and we believe the world and empty philosophies and deceptions above your word and above your heart for us. But thank you for your love. For your love was perfectly poured out on Christ when he died for us. That in Christ, all of our sins have been paid for. And because of what he did in dying for us, our sins may be not only dealt with, but can be removed. God, in the area that we admitted this morning, we place our hope and our trust only in what Christ has done, not only to save us, but in that specific situation that we named. And we believe that he will have victory in that area of our lives because he's powerful and he's done all that's needed. God, it's not enough that we just believe, but we commit to you in that area to learn, to grow. God, Jesus rose from the dead to show that death had no victory in his life and that all of us can experience resurrection in any area of our life where it's needed. And so in the area that we name today, would you allow the resurrection power of Christ to change it? And as we see the beauty of his resurrection, God, would we embrace fully his plan for our marriage, for our parenting, for our work. God, for the struggles as we watch people walk through difficult seasons in their lives, we believe that you're enough. And we commit ourselves to learn how we can be more surrendered to you in that area. God, get more of our heart so that we can show more of you to this world. We thank you how you'll do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.